It is so worth being a little uncomfortable for a little while to try something. And then every time you'll be a little less uncomfortable or you'll also just be able to tackle bigger things and be equally uncomfortable. So I think we owe it to ourselves. Ah, uh, mic drop. You guys, my guest today is someone so special and so unique and so spectacular. I have been like crawling out of my skin waiting for this interview. People, please meet Julia Landauer. She is a two-time champion race car driver from New York City. And since making history as the first and youngest female champion in the Skip Barber Racing Series at age 14, Julia has amassed dozens of wins in many different racing series. After becoming the first woman to win a NASCAR track championship at Motor Mile Speedway in her division in 2015, Julia graduated to the televised NASCAR KNN Pro Series West in 2016 and went on to become the first woman to lead a lap in the Canadian NASCAR Pinty Series in 2019. In 2020, she competed in the NASCAR Euro Series where she finished fifth, the highest ever for an American. Julia most recently raced part-time in NASCAR Xfinity Series and away from the track, you're gonna love this. She graduated from Stanford in 2014, getting a Bachelor of Science degree in Science, Tech and Society. But we're not done yet. During college, Julia was a contestant on season 26 of CBS's reality TV show, Survivor. It was also in college that Julia started her motivational speaking career with a TEDx talk. And I'm telling you, her talks and keynotes are sensational. She does amazing corporate work, which we will talk about a little bit in a bit. Julia has purposely built her brand to be where technology, community, and racing intersect and fuse while advocating for STEM education and women's empowerment. Julia, pick up for us what you're doing now, because there's been a huge change in your life recently. Well, first, I have to say that having someone as enthusiastic and articulate as you reading my bio is exceptional for my ego. So thank you. Oh, this is a great so way. Welcome. I'm a big fan. Big um, fan. Oh, thank you. And for anyone listening, Bronwyn was my speaking coach for my TEDx talk at Stanford and just the... I mean, we can geek out over this, but like the whole process, the way she helped me get out of my own head and learn how to storytell. I mean, it was the catalyst for my entire speaking career. So one, thank you so much. That's just amazing. So now I've had this big career at the end of 2022 was kind of a make or break moment. And unfortunately, it did not quite continue the way I would have hoped. And mm -hmm. I decided it was time to look to the next chapter. And so mm -hmm. I found myself through a lot of work and talking with a lot of people, but I'm now working on the strategy and innovation team at NASCAR. So awesome. it's another vertical in which I get to dedicate myself professionally. Which is fantastic because your keynote piece of who you are, your identity as a teacher and a speaker and a motivator continues to thrive. You're still doing corporate and keynotes at universities, things like that. But on top of being on the strategy and innovation team at NASCAR, you're also continuing your podcast, which is called... If I'm Honest with Julia Landauer. Which I think is... And this is actually where I wanted to start the interview. So what's so amazing about who you are, we're in the year 2024, when America, quote unquote, got to know you, it was when you were on Survivor. 
In fact, to prepare for this, I literally went back and watched the moment where you were voted off the island. And I <laughs> swear to God, Julia, I didn't know that when you got voted off, it was a runoff. It was a tie between you and that other dude. And I was looking at your face. First of all, you look like you're 12. You're so young. And you've had these insane, unexpected places where you've shown up. And your brand, at least like your current self, is so outspoken, so honest, so visible, so like, I will tell you everything. I will be honest as can be. But I remember the critique of you on Survivor was that you were vanilla. I know. Talk about that journey, the identity journey, the voice journey, that this is who I am as a woman, as a leader, as a fucking badass. Yeah, Survivor was not necessarily my best moment. It was really incredible. It's so authentic. I mean, I think the show is incredible. The creators, Jeff Prote, Mark Burnett, amazing product and just family and story that they have built, which is so cool. But yeah, it was kind of the kick in the ass for me that I needed to be a little more intentional about how I was interacting with people, about Mm. how I was presenting myself. And obviously it's TV, there are editors. And at the end of the day, though, how they portrayed me was rooted in some truth. And that was something that I also learned simultaneously at a Stanford design school class where I was a case study at the same time. So I don't know if you what? remember we talked about this. Yeah. So the design school at Stanford had a class called Heroes and Their Superfans. And it was looking at how people, Stephen Colbert, Dale Earnhardt Sr. and Michael Jordan could amass these huge loyal fans. And the teacher professor asked if they could use me as a case study because I was a race car driver trying to build up this career. And they did a deep dive and watched a lot of interviews and the overwhelming feedback, which came literally the same time, spring my junior year when Survivor was airing. And it was embarrassing to be having all these viewing parties with minimal TV time. Oh, Julia. Oh, it was character building. It was very character building. (laughs) But they throughout the quarter, they're looking at all my stuff, social media interviews, talking with me one on one as a group. And I remember the last day of class where they were giving their findings. We were in a U-shape and I was sitting at the opening of that U-shape and they were going through the feedback and it was things like, you seem too polished and prepared. You don't seem like a 21-year-old race car driver student. And some of the things were just really sterile and that they Mm. didn't feel a lot of emotion from my social media. And Mm. no one was being mean, but it was just this really kind of critical feedback one graduate student after the other. And I could feel like the tears boiling up. I kept it together in the classroom. But as soon as I got on my bike to get back to my dorm, it was like shedding tears. And then I had to stop biking and wait a second. And it was such an insane amount of pressure. And then to have it deconstructed in front of your face, in front of all these people. It was tough. I knew what I was signing up for. And I kind of viewed it as like, okay, this is free consulting. Yeah. For a bunch of Um, Stanford design people. Right. Like we got some smarties taking a look at this, but it was also like just so important and it was so critical. And Mm -hmm. I remember talking with my mom a lot about it afterwards and deciding in that moment that I wanted to be perceived as vivacious. I wanted people to feel good energy around me. And it was something that then encouraged me to actively practice that. And so I kid you not, going to a grocery store and interacting with the cashier or going to a party, really being 
hyper aware of how I was holding myself, how I was walking mm -hmm. into a room, pushing myself out of my comfort zone to talk to people. And it worked. It's something that took a lot of time, but then I got really yeah. comfortable with it. I'm going to end this little bit with something that I observed with my mom. My mom is a lawyer. She's an only child. She and my dad have been together since they were in high school. And she is super smart. But she can get along with literally anyone that she mm. interfaces with. It doesn't matter who it is, what their title is, what's going on, what their background is. She finds these points of connections and these points of similarities. Mm. And she runs with it. And it just makes her so warm and she's authentic and she's genuinely curious about people. And so kind of with all this that I had just experienced and knowing that I always really respected that about my mom, I was like, okay, yeah. we are going to figure out how to have a better human connection with everyone I interact with. And actually, I just want to touch on this even more because I think so many people can resonate with this because there's this unfortunate paradox because we want to be authentic. We want to be true to who we are. And also we recognize that the world responds better to people who know how to create positive energy around themselves, like a spinning vortex of connection or whatever it is. And so is what you're saying, Julia, that your natural set point, your homeostasis level tended to be quieter, more level, more inward more focused on whatever it was that came next. And you had to train yourself to be more conscious about spinning energy around yourself to bring people in. Is that what you're saying or am I missing this? I would say that's an element of what I'm saying. And I think that's definitely the case if I was in a social situation where I was a little less comfortable. Yeah. I think there were plenty of parties at college or walking into a new classroom with a lot of students that I felt a little less comfortable. I always mm -hmm. felt pretty comfortable with more adulty adults or senior adults or talking about racing stuff or meeting with professors. Like none of that was ever problematic, but I definitely noticed some things. But the other piece of what I was saying and what I realized in kind of thinking about why I was vanilla, lack of a better phrase, was that from a very young age, so I started racing cars when I was 13 mm -hmm. and I don't come from a racing family. And so I think especially because I was so young and my parents were two professionals, who were very involved and very hands-on, but I got a lot of unsolicited advice about how to be. And we're talking about things like, and this was back in the early 2000s, but like, don't be too feminine because people won't take you seriously. Don't be too tomboy because then you won't be attractive. Or like as a New Yorker in racing, don't voice your political opinions. Don't focus on cultural differences, all this kind of stuff. And Jesus, because I was also a teenager though, like I maybe I have an authority complex or something, but like as a teenager and you're having these adults who are very experienced in this industry, and I think they meant well and they didn't mean yeah. harm. It was like, yeah, protect yourself, protect yourself at all costs. Yes. And I think when you have over PR trained people, like that's kind of what I was becoming and trying to be. You trying almost to please everyone. You almost develop an exoskeleton that's yeah. constantly navigating the edges and the parts, which makes so much sense. And actually it's such an intense, weird, specific experience that you have, you carry in your body, mind, and spirit. Not a lot of people can relate. Okay. There's the Stanford piece of your story and there's the survivor piece of your story, but there's also that racing piece of your story, which is getting a teenage girl to aggressively and seriously compete in a world that's made up of boys. One of the things I find really fascinating is when you talk about how to get your needs met 
as a female racer. You'll be negotiating what you think needs to happen with people that are real crystal clear on what they think needs to happen. Talk about how you learn to advocate for yourself in that world as a teenager moving forward and how that translates into your life now. Yeah, that's a great question with a lot of layers to it. And I will first and foremost, thank my parents for being so proactive and hands-on and figuring out what are the biological differences between girls and boys. And my dad's a doctor, so he knew some of this, but what are some of these differences? How will that then impact her and then my sister, like in practice versus qualifying versus the race where you're in different mindsets? So one study or one observation, I can't credit this to anyone because I don't know, but like, I think they had read men are from Mars, women are from Venus. And the idea that sometimes once women have proven themselves, sometimes they think, okay, that's good. I've proven that I'm worthy of being here. Whereas guys tend to think I have to keep proving myself and reprove myself and do it again and win again. And so like little things like that, they were researching and thinking, okay, could this apply to my daughters who are going racing? So first really appreciate that. And I had a lot of dedicated attention to that, which is a gift, a total gift and a luxury to have. Wow. But then on top of that, I think part of racing is people respect results. And so I was able to prove that pretty quickly. And even if I wasn't the best right away, like I asked a lot of questions, I asked for feedback. And maybe this is part of the problem and what led to being a people pleaser a bit is that Mm. I don't feel like I learned early on to distinguish between taking something as a grain of salt versus actually like really internalizing it. And this idea that if someone is more experienced or if someone is an expert in something, like then what they're saying must be right. I don't think that's accurate. And that's something I'm going to think about Parting onto my future children is yeah. you don't have to take everyone's advice, even if they're the world champion or whatever in racing, they might have a different style, different background, whatever. Like there's where no... the world might have changed since then. Exactly, you know? which was definitely the case with some of my feedback. And so yeah. I feel like I've gone on a bit of a tangent, but basically back to being a woman in the sport and advocating for myself, a lot of it was that I was clearly very serious about what I was doing for a long time. And because I asked a lot of questions and because I asked for feedback, I think preconceived notions about what a woman from New York who went to Stanford would be like as a race car driver. I think that kind of helped negate some of those negative preconceived notions. And how so, Julia? I think that if you just look at those labels, which I associate with good things, I love Stanford. I love me you too. I, me too. You know, all this stuff. I love being a woman. And although it has some hurdles and some obstacles, but overall, I love it. And (laughs) but I think that people before they met me could think that I would be pretentious, a bit of a princess, whatever that is. And so I recognized that I didn't ever want to get pigeonholed into that. And so was intentional about how I presented myself, how I talked. I rooted a lot of my communication style and humor with Mm. the guys and that has served me really well. And I think that's something that has served me really well now joining the corporate world Mm. because again, so grateful for my mother, grateful for both my parents, but for my mother and her showing that you can relate to so many people, it's always helped me at the racetrack and with partners and at speaking events, but Mm. it's really cool to see it work with colleagues as well and how you can build a relationship with so many different people. Yeah. It's really a big deal. And I watch you on stage when I see clips of you in, in action and I can tell how much delight you take in connecting with people of lots of different backgrounds. Like you really go out of your way to connect with the audience. You don't just get up there and do a keynote, like you're asking questions and you're engaging. It's so cool to watch, but 
The other question I have for you, which I think is also such a through line when I think about you're this wily little 14-year-old racing with all the dudes and then you're at Stanford and then you're competing on this insane television show, which by the way, looks the most unpleasant vacation ever to me. Because I never <laughs> I really got a, into watching that's it. That's a fair description. <laughs> And then you get into NASCAR and even moving into corporate world and keynote speaking, all those things. To me, there's such a through line of all of that, which is dealing with fear and anxiety and a shit ton of adrenaline. What were some of the things in your toolkit to deal with all that stuff? And which of those things was helpful? And which of those things was maybe maladaptive? Great question. And I love talking about fear because I had such a misconception about how I handled fear myself until I was probably in my mid-20s because, again, it was kind of projected onto me, but race car drivers can't be scared. They're going really fast near a wall in a big machine. And so it's like, yeah, I guess I must not be scared because I'm doing it. And what I realized, though, is that in go-karting or in any kind of racing, everyone crashes. It's not fun. You hope that it's not a big crash, but everyone crashes. And I think if you're a 10 or 11 year old and you're maneuvering this machine and then you spin off or you crash into something and then you get up and either keep driving or you get up and walk away, you've just totally epitomized falling and getting back up, failing and getting back up. And unless you get really injured, which racing is really safe and NASCAR in particular is very safe. And we haven't had a death since Dale Earnhardt Sr. in 2001. So that's an incredible wow. record. That's insane. Even how many races they do every year. But you learn that you can literally crash and you will be okay. And I think that mm. takes some of the edge off and you'll walk away. And because I maybe not actively thought about it, but because mm. I had that experience so early, I knew that I could overcome it. And mm. the other thing that I've realized more recently that I'm incorporating into keynotes is this idea that you master one level of go-karting and then you have to move up to a faster one. And you're yeah. not going to be the best right away, but you incrementally and pragmatically kick away at it until you've now mastered that. And then you're going super fast and then you have to level up again. And so it's a constant being scared, working through it, leveling up. And yeah. that goal at the end of winning or of making your team proud or making yourself proud, that's something that drives you. And I love that metaphor because I was pondering this the other day, because in January we make all of our intentions and we look at the goals and I'm like a huge nerd about that stuff. I love it. And I was noticing how with our careers, with our lives, it's such a blessing to see a career as a series of levels that you're just moving through versus being like, okay, if I just get that one job or if I just win that one thing, it's going to make me feel whole. That's not the point. The point is every level has its lesson and you just keep pushing through. But mm -hmm. Julie, let's say you're the new one at this next level or the first time you gave that TEDx talk or whatever. What do you do physically to manage yeah. your nerves because there's the psychological part, the pre-game psychological stuff. But then there's the, oh my God, they just strapped me into this fucking bullet and I'm going to shoot out and go a million miles an hour. Talk about the physical piece of managing nerves. Totally. So the way that fear manifests in my body is that I definitely have a heightened heart rate. I start to feel a little shaky, a little jittery. And I noticed my attention is a little darty. And so I think there's a couple of different things, different scenarios. 
for racing, what I found is that I have to expel that energy. And I discovered this when I was 14. I was late getting to the grid and I had to go to the bathroom. You don't want to be like uncomfortable when you get in the car, pee your pants, which it's happened. We deal with it. This is sports. But I was starting somewhere in the top three and I had to sprint to the bathroom and then sprint to the car. And I realized that I felt a lot more calm. And so it's a superstition at this point, but literally since that day when I was 13 or 14, I sprint somewhere before I get in the car for a race or for qualifying. So not always to the bathroom. I've learned how to time that. Yeah. So I sprint somewhere. Sometimes it's just down the pit lane. Sometimes it's from the hauler or sorry, the trailer to some element in the pits, just something to get my heart rate up a little bit. Mm. Once I get in the car, I do some deep breathing. I still get nervous before a keynote because I think for any kind of presentation or performance or anything, if you're not getting nervous, I personally feel that if you're not super invested in it, then you might not get nervous. And for me, if I'm getting on stage, I want to make sure that I'm making the next 45 minutes of every attendee's life really exciting, interesting, introspective. And I put a lot of pressure on myself to deliver that the best that I can. And so I am nervous and I will be angry at myself if I don't perform that way. And so I can't sprint before getting on stage. And so that's where you got heels on. You got heels on, got mics on, don't need to sprint in front of my audience. Don't need to sweat through my makeup, all that stuff. And it only really hits for me in the five to 10 minutes leading up to it. Same sister. So I do deep breathing and I'll just do deep diaphragm breathing. And it's really the equivalent of when you're in the car you're sitting on pit lane, getting ready to go out and you're all strapped in all the stuff's going on around you. They've done all the pre-race ceremonies and the most nerve wracking is before you start the car and start driving. It's that anticipation, like before a plane takes off, like that anticipation of what's going to happen. And then in the race car, as soon as you put your visor down, and that's the analogy, like we use, like put your visor down, then you're in the zone because then you're just focused on, okay, now I have to go do my job. And so it's the same thing on stage. I'll get on stage and it's like, all right, now I'm getting the adrenaline and the audience is applauding for me. And now is my time to go tell some stories and flirt with the audience a little bit, be a little sassy, <laughs> you know. And I don't necessarily mean that in like a sexual way, but tease the audience a little bit. For example, I had one gig a little while ago where we were talking and I know certain places where I expect people to laugh and it's proven time and time again. And there was one woman somewhere to my right who just was laughing so loudly, like so big belly laughs. And I was like, cool, okay. So I go on and like the third or fourth time I'm giving my keynote and she's laughing. And I just turned to her. I'm like, whoever here is laughing so much, you are making my ego feel so great. So thank you. Keep doing that. It's like those little micro moments. For me, as a now 30 something year old race car driver giving a keynote, I find it's okay to be the same person I would be in person in a conversation as I am on stage. That's a should on that one. That's what audiences want. They want to feel like you're being generous with who you are in the world. Yeah. yeah. But back to dealing with the energy bursts yeah. and it's almost like finding a grounding. Sometimes if there's an electrical socket, you need that third prong to ground the energy. And when you say deep diaphragmatic breathing, describe what that feels like, because this is a thing... I talk to my clients about all the time. They're like, okay, we're going to work together and I'm not going to be afraid of public speaking anymore, right? And I'm like, no, that's not on offer. It's not a magic pill there. No, you just really literally get good at building your toolkit for what you do. So walk us through your breathing exercise before you 
take off or give a speech? Yeah. And so one, I did learn early on, I think it was back in 2018, that my stylist had given me an outfit that had a high-waisted belt. And so that belt was right on my diaphragm stomach area. So I could not do my deep breathing. Lesson learned. So don't wear a high belt. But basically I sit, I definitely have my feet flat on the ground. I either close my eyes or zone out, put my hands on my thighs or knees, whatever. And then I slowly but deeply breathe in through my nose and expand my stomach basically to get as much as possible. And I think about the air that's going through my nose and what I'm feeling. And as the air is then going like down my throat Mm -hmm. and then I breathe out through my mouth and people have different cadences that they like. And I do it for sometimes five cycles, sometimes Mm -hmm. 10. That's what works for me. And Mm -hmm. it just helps slow down the heart rate a little bit. Mm -hmm. It helps me become very focused on something other than my keynote, other than what I'm about to do. Yes. But some people like square method of breathing or box breathing. Box breathing. I'm a huge fan of box breathing. Yeah. Which I don't find it calming at all. So I think it's really important to experiment with different things that make you calmer. Maybe I just get too compulsive about, okay, is my inhale breath the same amount of time as my hold breath? I feel like I think about it too much. Yeah, yeah. It does not work for me. I love that because the whole point is to build a toolkit that works for you. Yeah. And now let me ask you this, because this is something that I have been learning over the past couple of years, which I never paid attention to. And then I just needed to, but there's the pregame ritual that where you're like, getting in the zone, you're getting focused, you're getting rid of all those nerves, you're becoming your higher self, you're going out there and performing. But then you finish the race, the keynote, the thing, you walk off the set of the freaking reality TV show. What have you learned about down-regulating and coming out of those high-intensive periods? Because this is where a lot of performers in various dimensions and categories They develop very real substance abuse problems, partially, I think, because they don't know what to do with all this fucking amazing energy that's coursing through their body when they come off a stage. That is such a great way of framing it for anyone who hasn't done a similar experience. No, I mean, I'm on a high from racing for hours after the race, unless it's a really bad race. And then you're like, that was terrible and you move on. But when things go well, it's just there's not a better feeling. And it's great on stage. I mean, we're all on a high when we come off and the enthusiasm and some of the conversations afterwards are fine. But even if you just are feeding off of the energy and the applause, and I'll be honest, sometimes if I have to get to an airport quickly afterwards, or I'm on a tight, that brings me down. But otherwise I let myself luxuriate in that high as long as it lasts. And I, I know that I get deeply invested in most things that I do. I know that I like living on an emotional roller coaster. It is exhausting. I don't mean that in like a toxic way. I get really high hopes for things. I get really excited by the potential. The possibilities really make me feel great. And then when things don't work out, I get really down about it. I get really upset. It kind of depends on what it is, but I also let myself get very upset And it might take a year or two off the end of my life, but I enjoy it right now of feeling that committed to something. And so, yeah, I let myself live in that high and I don't do any substances. So there's a firm line there. Love my wine for sure. But I totally get how you could get addicted to that because you just feel great and on top of the world. And but I don't try to force it in either direction. What's so amazing to me about this is Here I am, I'm turning 50 this year. 
And it never occurred to me that there was a strategy for this that was just, hey, how about you just enjoy it? How about when you come out of it, you just ride the high? Like for me, the hardest part about COVID is I did so much keynote speaking virtually, which I'm sure you did too. And the worst was that I would get off of a keynote. This probably happened to you too. And it's like, bye, click, leave meeting. And then I'm standing in this room being like, did anybody see that? Right. Talk to me. It was this awful feeling of now what do I do? I'm in an empty room. Did that ever happen to you? I think I still felt the high of that. It was a little different. I think it would also be super different if there was a Q&A afterwards. If it was just log off, then yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. That was a fun 45 minutes. I'm going to get mm-hmm. back to my day now. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's that difference. If there was Q&A and I got to see what resonated and learn what they liked and what they disagreed with or whatever, mm-hmm. I think that was cool. But I'm now curious, what strategies do you hear or teach or what do you think is the way to come back down? Because I'll be honest, I never thought about not enjoying the high of your performance. Well, honestly, this reveals my psychology and my background. I think mostly I was like, oh, now I'm supposed to go back to who I am normally, which is somebody who's working, somebody who's got kids, somebody who's got to go pick up the dry cleaning, somebody, Mm -hmm. you need to come back down, Bronwyn. Don't live in those rarefied states because you'll get too big of a head, which I think is so unfortunate. I think it's such a waste of a peak experience. And I think what I'm learning from you, Julia, is that actually, I don't think it's going to take years off your life, Julia. In fact, I think it's going to extend your life because you're not suppressing the highs or the lows. Or it's causing my blood pressure to spike a little more than it needs to. If your husband was here, he'd be like, is it? I I know, right? He (laughs) might. I don't know. But to your point, I believe that some of that innate tendency to suppress that and go back to life. I wonder if that impacts women in a different way than it does men. Women historically, and this was something I hated growing up in the 90s, 2000s, was that like women were not celebrated for wanting to win. It was not nice or cute to want to be a winner, to want to obliterate your competition, to want to be a high earner. And so I wonder- competitive at all. Yeah. And so, and like you and I are different generations, but I have no doubt that that ethos of what it is to be a woman from, I hope not from current times, at least, but I'm sure that that plays in because you're supposed to be agreeable. If you are reveling in the fact that you just absolutely kicked ass and inspired people and got that energy, that's not a box that fits a lot of those stereotypes. Yeah. Actually, that's making me think of another question I have for you. So my whole life, I've been in bands off and on as a singer. And it was so fun. It was such a joy. I remember early on, I learned there would be sound check. For a woman vocalist, I'm looking for a certain kind of sound so that I don't have to work really hard and burn out my voice before the end of the performance, right? Or ruin it so I can't perform the next night too. And so during sound check, I'd be like looking for this specific sound. And over and over again, I would work with sound people that were like, no, it's fine. No, it's fine. And I'm like, you fucking don't have to hit these notes. And it sounds muddy and I can't hear myself. And I got labeled a diva for trying to get that right sound. And at a certain point, I just gave up. Well, I guess I'm going to fucking trash my voice again tonight because I can tell that the guy doesn't know how to get that big, beautiful, lilting sound I'm looking for that makes it feel like I barely have to try, right? So if you're in your shoes and you're racing, you've got a pit crew, 
that are there to support you, but they're also dudes and they've got a bunch of preconceptions about you. What are some of the strategies you use to get things dialed exactly the way you wanted them while also knowing that we have all this baggage because we're women. And if we get really up in somebody's grill about what we need, they're going to call us a diva. Or they're going to call you something worse. Let me tell you a specific story. So condensed, we were racing in a series I did well overall in the series, but there were some obstacles and some bumps, but we had one race where we couldn't get the car set up. And I was convinced that there was something on the chassis itself, not so much our setup, not so much my driving. And so we had a driver coach get in the car and basically a big chunk of tungsten, which is a weight, fell off. It was not secured. It fell off. If it was an official practice day, it would have been a huge fine, like all this stuff. It was extremely dangerous. And it was kind of the fourth or fifth sloppy mistake that had happened. And I was really frustrated. And I was frustrated that people were not taking my concerns seriously. I very sternly vocalized this to my team owner. And he said, and I quote, stop being a little bitch about it and go see how you can help your team. It was like, I am sorry, you are risking my life. You're risking the life of the people who are also on the track. This is now the fifth mistake. I've been very nice and kind about what's going on. I'm the paying customer and it caused a conversation, but I think it was also an interesting time for the team because they realized there probably wouldn't have been that outsized reaction to me if I was a guy. It'd be like, we got to figure this out. That makes me enraged. So angry. So angry. It was so inappropriate. And this guy had a daughter who was my age. You don't talk to people like that. Anyway, one of the really great things from that year was one of the male allies that I made and kind of being able to just express what I was going through. And he got to see it firsthand because he's watching literally every lap I do on track and seeing how guys treat me different. We had a good relationship. So I could just say like, this feels unfair to me, or this is something that I deal with. And Because he saw that and he was one of the guys and everything, he could vocalize it and he was comfortable vocalizing it. And that was a really big tool to kind of lean on the guys that I could tell were empathetic and who saw the injustices. So I think male allies are super important. That was one strategy. I Wait, before we move off of that one strategy, though, so... I've had such similar experiences. Yeah, there are bad actors and there's just patriarchies floating around in the air, but there's Mm -hmm. so many great allies. Were you intentional about how you built those alliances or did any strategy go into it? How do you think about male allyship? This is one of the hardest questions for me to answer because I get it on stage a lot too in the Q&As. How do you build these relationships? And I think it's so nuanced because every personality is different. So you're going to have a natural chemistry with some people and you're not with others. And so there's that element. And so you have to kind of see who you naturally gravitate towards. And then there's, are people open to feedback and criticism and are they good listeners and all that stuff. And so that's a whole different dimension that you have to try to find. And if you have good chemistry and they're good listeners and they see some of the injustices or biases, mm-hmm. are they the type of person who is going to speak up about it? So there are a lot of stars that have to align, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. But what I try to do is I try to kind of surface level, share what I go through, see what people's reactions are. You can kind of see in people's reactions to your stories if they agree with you, if they don't really care, if they're empathetic, if they're not, if they actively think you're full of it. There's those people out there too. And then it's building. I don't really label 
as like, okay, this is an ally, this is not, but it's more just experimenting with who you can lean on and seeing how people step up. Yeah. But it's really hard. I've had a couple of really incredible ones and there are those more explicit allies, but then there's also the allies. Like I had a team owner who he just expected that I would be able to win in his equipment because his equipment was good enough. His people were good enough and I was good enough. And having that vote of confidence that you will win instead of be the quote unquote woman driver who's at the back, you can feel if the team has low expectations of you. And I think that's universal, not just racing. Oh, oh. A woman walks onto a team in a corporate world. You can tell if people are underestimating you. You can tell if yeah. people think you're not going to be an asset. Yeah. And one form of more implicit allyship is not assuming that someone will not be good at what they're doing because of labels. And so or that and they're going to need more allowances. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that that's really powerful just to not underestimate people, yes. women, people of color, people yeah. who have disabilities, whatever the quote unquote other is. Yeah. Not yeah. assuming that they won't be as good. And so there's little things, but mm -hmm. I wish I had a more concrete answer. I just yeah. try to be warm and an open book to people and share mm -hmm. stuff. And if it resonates, that's great. And if not, you know, nothing against them necessarily, just they won't be where you put your energy into having that ally. Amen to that. Amen to that. Amen. There's also, and I wonder if you felt this too in your racing career, if I get to be the main speaker at a sales kickoff event, let's say in the software mm -hmm. industry, I am so conscious that if you were to, and this goes for you too, Julia, if you were to take a spreadsheet and look at every single sales kickoff speaker during the course of the year and say, okay, which of these were women? We are in the drastic minority, I would bet. Yeah. And even less women of color. And so every time I get on stage, I want to crush this, not just because I want this audience to have a great experience, but because you're carrying the weight of when oh. you were racing, when you would go out on that track, did you ever think, God, I got to crush this, not just for me, not just for my team, it's for the little girls that are in go-karts right now. Like, did that ever weigh on you? Or are you like, I can't deal with that right now. I'll think about it later. I was totally aware of it. I wouldn't say it weighed on me, but I think that women in male-dominated spaces have such a magnifying glass on them. And yeah. if a woman is racing at the back of the field, it's like she's classic woman racer. There will always be a last place. And majority of the time, that last place, second to last place, third last place are all men. But it's no one says so like, oh, classic true. man who's at the back. Someone's got to fill that slot. But if it's a woman, it's be like classic. Oh. And wow, I'm getting like worked up. I can feel the heat <laughs> rising in my face. And I think about that now and it's so shitty. It's so shitty because there are certain people, both men and women, who get a lot of attention in any industry, any sport. Mm -hmm. And I just so desperately want a woman in NASCAR and it's in other racing series as well, but to have a well-funded, well-supported woman so she can prove that women can compete up front regularly. And you see it in the grassroots level. What's yeah. tough with motorsports is that it is so financially driven. It is so expensive to go racing. You have to bring funding, whether it's sponsorship or personal funding, which is a lot of it in the development series. And so there's high barriers anyway. Yeah. And I hate it. And I think one of, you know, many women talk about this, whether it's Pippa Man with the Shift Up Now organization or other prominent women in racing. There's a bit of a cycle because since Danica Patrick, really, you haven't seen a lot of big companies come in and support women. And so because it's expensive to go racing, if women aren't likely to get as much sponsorship, then we're taking what we do get and making the best of it. But yeah. there are hierarchies with teams and well-funded teams will do better than less well-funded teams. And 
the teams that you can afford to go racing on if you don't have a lot of funding are the less good teams. And then you're in this vicious cycle of not being able to afford better equipment and better teams and reinforcing the stereotype that women aren't good racers. And the reality is that we are, and it's just, it's so complex. And yes, I totally understand the pressure and desire to prove on behalf of women everywhere that we can do it. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, there's one last thing I wanted to ask you, and then I swear to God, I'm going to let you go. When I think about the skills that you bring to bear, and this is true for everybody listening too, is we have to, as human beings in various points of our lives, make really important decisions under enormous pressure with very little time and imperfect information. And it's kind of the story of modern life. And there are moments where we just feel enormous pressure, whether that pressure is real or invented in our minds, who cares? We feel it. What did you learn about making critical decisions under pressure with imperfect information when you were racing or even in your experience on Survivor? I think that's relevant too. Yeah. So on the driving front, on the racing front, so much happens at such high speed. So I think the big takeaway that I got from racing, which I apply to life, is that you have to make a decision. It's a quick analysis. You do the best that you can with the information you have. You follow your gut, but you have to make the move. And people will say the really great racers, not just drivers, but like really great racers will make room where there's not a hole or they'll go for that pass that they shouldn't physically be able to do, but they make that move. And I think it's that sentiment, like you have to do something. Mm. And so with dealing with pressure, and I'm finding this in the corporate setting, am I going to make a suggestion that does it backfire? Is it great for the company? Mm -hmm. They might fire me. I don't know. I don't think so right now. I'm a little early in my tenure. I'm not messing up that badly, but you have to do. And I think in any given situation, assess the worst case scenario on the racetrack. Worst case scenario is you're going to crash your car and it's not going to be good. So you prefer to make better decisions there. A lot of it's practice and you'll get better at making good decisions. The more decisions you have to make Mm -hmm. in other areas of life, many of the high pressure decisions that we have to make will not be detrimental. I know plenty will be, whether it's financial, whether it's like physical safety, like plenty of people are making those tough decisions. And I'll be honest, I'm Mm -hmm. not. And I don't feel like an expert in being able to talk about it. But for the rest of us, it'll likely be okay. I don't mean to say that we're not important. Let's humble ourselves a little bit and not much is going to be that detrimental. And so go for it. You should go for it. And the more that you go for it, the more that you try things that are scary, the more that you experience making these big decisions under pressure. Mm the more you'll realize, oh, I can do this. Oh, I can recover from this. Oh, that worked. Amazing. Let me ride that momentum. Yeah. And you just up your threshold for what you're able to do. And it's just like anything. It's practicing doing what you want to do. So, wow, I feel like I just got off of a soapbox there. I feel very passionately about it. It's so true, though, because I think to me, the thing that's the most heartbreaking for me, and I see it in this weird little pocket of helping people become better public speakers, right? Because it's such a fear people have. To me, what's heartbreaking is when people let fear keep them from making any decisions at all, because making no decision is still making a decision. It's just the worst possible decision sometimes. And I think what's cool about the way you see the world is just even the through line of your whole career, Julia, I see someone who's, I'm going to fucking go for it. I'm going to see what happens. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but it's giving you this delicious, rich tapestry of a human life 
that is just so wonderful to look at. Maybe that's where I will close. I'm just so happy for you. I love watching you thrive. I love this new role at NASCAR. I can't wait to see what you do with it. And I just am so grateful that you're such a visible presence out there, just advocating for women, advocating for girls, and just kicking ass. Just keep going, sister. Oh, thank you so much. What I will leave everyone with on that point is the way I like to phrase this, and I talk about this with my audience, is that if you're thinking about doing something scary and you're deciding whether or not to go for it or if you should try, I think you need to have a long, hard look at yourself every time. Ask yourself, why not? Why would I not go for it? And again, if you cannot give yourself a good enough answer, besides the fact that it makes you uncomfortable, then I firmly believe you owe it to yourself to try. It is so worth being a little uncomfortable for a little while to try something. And then every time you'll be a little less uncomfortable, or you'll also just be able to tackle bigger things and be equally uncomfortable. So I think we owe it to ourselves. Ah, mic drop. Thank you so much, Julia. And people can find you on julialandauer.com. Is that right? That is right. And then on social media at Julia Landauer on all the channels. And yeah. And the podcast. If I'm I'm honest with Julia Landauer and obviously a lot of speaking stuff. So Bronwyn, thank you so much for giving me my start in learning how to tell a story. No, I sing your praises all the time. And it's really cool to know how important storytelling is and those who do it well and those who don't and how much you can apply that professionally and personally. So you are wonderful and helping so many people. So thank you. Hey, if you haven't already, hit subscribe so you can get my latest podcast episodes delivered hot off the press or share this with someone who could use it. If you're looking to go further on this journey as a communicator, head over to bronwyncommunications.com forward slash subscribe and get on that newsletter. You get fresh tips every Monday morning to set you up for the week. And on the last Saturday of the month, you'll get a short email with my favorite things that I'm into. If you're dealing with a tough client or work situation and you need better skills for managing hard conversations, check out my No Enemy Conversation course. It's at noenemy.bronwyncommunications.com and it is self-paced and it is all there for you. If your company or organization needs a high-voltage keynote speaker who knows how to melt faces and blow minds virtually or in real life, I am your gal. I have two dozen different fantastic keynote topics and you and I, we can make something killer happen. So shoot me a note and let's do it. If you're still with me and you're thinking you might be ready to invest in your own development as a communicator, let's talk. I am here, I am convinced on this planet to help visionary leaders become spellbinding communicators. And if that sounds like something you want to explore, email me. I'm at bronwyn at bronwyncommunications.com. Shine on, my friend. We need your light.